Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. Today, I'm going to be talking with Kurt Vile. He's one of my favorite singer-songwriters of this century and one of a relatively small group of people still doing something interesting with guitars right now. He was raised in Philadelphia, and for a while he played in the band The War on Drugs. He was best friends with the founder of that band, Adam Grandisil, and Adam played in Kurt's band as well back then. Kurt's entire discography is worth checking out. His other projects include a great 2017 collaborative album with Courtney Barnett. But Kurt Vile's new album is called Watch My Moves and is full of more hazily gorgeous songs, including a fantastic Springsteen cover. I had an unusual amount of fun talking with Kurt about songwriting, the many mysteries of classic rock, drugs, Wu-Tang Clan, his time driving a forklift, and a whole lot of other stuff. Here's that conversation. How are you feeling about where you're at with your major label debut coming out at this point in, in your life and career? It feels really good and it feels just feels like home, which is funny to say because that's where we've all been. We've been home a lot more, haven't we? It's like no pressure. They're like, just let me still make the record I want to make. I, I realize I have my own sort of unique style that kind of gets zoned out at times. I, I know this is a sort of chill record. It just felt right these past couple years have been almost like mandatory re- reflection for most people, unless you can turn your brain off, you know? I feel like, especially musically, time doesn't pass the same way it did in the 60s and 70s. As an example, and I, I have a feeling you might be the kind of person who does this math. It's like, okay, at the age you're at, that's when Bob Dylan did Infidels. That's when Springsteen did Human Touch at Lucky Town. When I read books about those very artists and you're so into the book and then you get to their 40s when they're the lows you know (laughs) when you first go around with it 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 is sort of depressing to you you saw them fly real close to the sun and then fall back down now that i'm sort of the same age you know i'm in my 40s i kind of like it i like chilling out but at the same time I, i am sort of always thinking about that definitely not wanting to I get so deep, honestly, in my records that I every time I think, oh, this is this record that is a hit, and I'm really gonna blow minds this time. Every time, and I, I feel like that's a good feeling to have, and I feel like every time it's uh, it's like I blow some minds, but it's 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 hard to blow everyone's minds, you know. <laughs> and then I just come back down, you know, from the the sun just a little bit, but. It feels good to be here. And I feel, especially have this break where I, I played a couple gigs. If I didn't play a couple gigs over this time, I would have feel insane right now. But I I still feel those couple gigs that I played and I'm really excited to go out there and connect to my fan. I, I make music for obsessives, you know? So that's that's kind of, I didn't mean to think I'd be ranting that long, but you really triggered me thinking about 
infidels and lucky town i guess <laughs> well well you know actually pretty good records honestly and also in neil young terms you're only two years away from freedom totally i actually love yeah i didn't mean to put it that way too i guess yeah it just made me think a little bit but yeah that's that's the always it's exciting to think about neil you know freedom you know 60 to zero and and when he comes up like before the 90s hit 89 like rocking in the free world and he'd be like uh Sure, he's a little older. He he'd do crazy things like lift weights, you know, like it, right before he got on stage to perform uh, "Rockin' in the Free World" the way it's supposed to have been performed, you know, on on Saturday Night Live or whatever it is. And yeah, I mean, they're the people I think about all the time that help keep me going in some form. Sign of the level of your new young fandom is that you referred to "Crime in the City" as sixty to zero. Do you prefer the earlier bootleg <laughs> versions to the one on the album? I think the one on the album is uh, underrated, actually. Oh, I think the one on the album is the one to go to. Uh, the way he inflects, you know, he's like, "Sometimes I'm good, then I'm bad," <laughs> you know. But now I'm doing my own thing. Sometimes I'm good, then I'm bad. Speaking of Neil, the opening track of the new album, Going on a Plane Today, obviously has the lyrical nod to Neil, but in its sort of odd, almost childlike character to it, reminds me of something like a weird track on Homegrown. I wonder if that was the vibe that you were kind of getting in there. Going on a plane today, gonna chug a beer and curse my name. Not Homegrown, but, but speaking of home, it's like my piano... That's where it is. That's where my clunky upright piano is. It's at home. And I wrote that song, yeah, right before I opened for Neil Young, the one time I did. And I didn't know the song was done then, you know, it's just a couple tracks, but I was, yeah, that childlike sort of hypnotic piano hook is, I always thought I had potential to start a record, but by the time I actually recorded it, it's because I was around my piano. You know, I, I would always pl write these songs on this piano. I had a particular sound, but I'd be like, I'll probably never record these because it sounds different on every other piano, but then here we are, you know, finally, finally somebody will set up some mics in my living room and I can just walk up to it and play it, you know. How are your piano chops? You heard them? No, <laughs> I, I actually, I love playing the piano. It's very meditative and I try, I tried to, there are multiple piano jams on this album, but it's funny uh, going on the plane today, the intro is the only one that really made it, but I, I often just, I know the basic chords. I'm trying to get back into it, or even into the trumpet. That's the one instrument I learned where I could read music, but it's very foggy. But certain artists I listen to now that I'm obsessed with, I feel like that's where I gotta go. I gotta, I gotta make some arrangements or something. You know, just to like tap into the Sun Ra or, or Don Cherry thing, just a little, just a tiny <laughs> bit, just at least to make some arrangements, you know. Well, whipping out the trumpet on stage would, would be a badass move. But I guess it's like Bowie with the saxophone or whatever. Yeah, <laughs> I, I used to do that for a minute in, in the, my early 20s. I recently got obsessed with the, the idea of getting a pocket trumpet, which is what Don Jerry played. And he's got this crazy tone. I just got turned on this album, Om Shanti Om, it's called. And uh, a band that we're touring with, they're called Natural Information Society. It's... Josh Abrams, an incredible bass player. But I said, I got to get a pocket trumpet. And he said, I think if you whipped out a pocket trumpet mid-set and ripped a solo, it would melt minds. <laughs> totally. <laughs> For now, the idea is it melts my mind enough. So you learn to finger pick from a guy named John. That's what song for John and D is about or what it was inspired by. 
Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because your finger picking has been so key to so many of your songs and continues to be. Well, yeah, John, it's John Newman. My cousin, Dan, he's the drummer in my band in high school. And the bass player was John. And he was my best friend since I was young and he was real supportive, like that early kind of best friend that like, uh, you know, you could stay up super late and laugh all delirious or just, and he just taught me right before I moved to Boston, uh, he taught me the most simplest basic lessons in finger picking, which is start with the thumb, just do the bass with the thumb back and forth. And then you can add one finger in, what you sort of figure it out your own and then a second. But f the main thing is just getting that bass in the thumb first. If you listen to John Fahey, you know, I read something about him somewhere that, where they said his bass finger was outright cocky at one point, you know, and, and you can really hear it there. So if you sort of listen to the bass and the thumb, the rest is history, but it also takes repetition. But luckily, you know, that's one of my skills is being very repetitive, you know. So yeah, he taught me how to finger pick and, and then I moved to Boston. I was pretty alone, so I had plenty of time to do that. And then when I came back, he actually passed away. Like, uh, he got cancer at, at 23. And, yeah, so that was my tribute to him that I wrote that song. I recorded around 2003, mm. you know, when I was 23. Wow. It's a good mythology, you know, working in the warehouse. Does it get over-mythologized? There are two companies that I, uh, that I did the forklift. And um, the first one, actually driving it, I liked. But it was such a fast-paced job. And I was young and awkward, and I literally was so green that when I went in there, I didn't even, I just heard I'd be working at a warehouse on black and boxes, or I didn't realize it was going to be such an intense job. And the, I, on Monday mornings, they had me literally come in at midnight on no sleep, basically, unload these tractor trailers until, like, it's the busiest day of the week, mind you, that's why you get there so early. And just heavy boxes, I don't know. And some people were nice to me, but you could figure... A lot of people were also mean to me. And I was up in Boston, think of The Departed and some of those really ball-busting accents, you know, directed at me. So that job, you know, it was still a good experience, though, because then I went to, I, I went back to Philly, and I, like, enrolled for one semester in college. I was like, I'm never going to work, I got to go to college, I'm never going to work one of these blue-collar jobs ever again. And sure enough, no way, that's not for me either, and, and I got to job at the brewery and it was like they're like oh you can drive the forklift and all of a sudden they couldn't believe how good of a forklift driver i was and i i guess i couldn't either it's a good skill to right. have and and so there'd be way crappier jobs to do and then they'd be like kurt we need you on the forklift so like it's it's pretty fun I, i'm gonna go back to that brewery and see if i could take it for a spin i swear because that's a philadelphia brewing company it used to be yards yeah, I, I think, honestly, if I had to pick one, it's a good memory, you know? Where did the confidence come from to do all those CDRs that preceded your first official album and, and kind of just pump that stuff out as a kind of homemade project for really a lot of years and keep that going in a little bit of a void? Well, it's funny. It's sort of like almost what I told you in the beginning, how I, I think I got a hit. You know, I'm always aspiring to get have a hit record and then... It's like an attitude and a confidence, and but in reality, yeah, you just hustle in your, you know, you, you, it's like a hustle. I would put them together, make them look like an LP, you know, just go to Kinko's, fold the thing in half, put it in a plastic sleeve like an LP, 
make them look as cool as possible. I feel like it's trickier today because things can easily get lost in, in like the feed, you know, a link. And But back then you could give somebody something to hold and it's a piece of art and, you know, fill it up with psychedelic sounds combined with music and call yourself constant hit maker and try to get a buzz going. But sure, by the end, I, it took long enough to get anybody interested in truly putting out my stuff that by the time I was 28 and Adam from the War on Drugs, he got he had a record deal in the can. A record deal was imminent with Secretly Canadian and I still didn't have anybody going to put out my record. But then the last minute, yeah, Gulcher Records was interested in putting out some of my old stuff. So I, I stealthily, I got Constant Hitmaker, which was a collection of best of CDRs to be put out in February of 2008, you know, and and then Adam's record, The War on Drugs, that came out in summer of 2008, but it was a serpentine <laughs> hustle to get here, you know? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a Steely Dan song, Serpentine Hustle. Yeah, I can hear, I can hear Donnie saying that for sure. I, I love, too, I read recently The Eminent Hipsters. That's such a good book. So you and Adam from War on Drugs, where did your tastes converge and where did they wildly differ if if anywhere well it's interesting because even when you say things like i how the confidence to have the cdr like that's kind of like when i look back nostalgically or when i see if adam was interviewed about me he would say oh well my favorite thing he ever said was talking about in the old days he's like it's not it's not like he had it all together because <laughs> i didn't but he's like but he had a confidence and then uh, I, I mean Together we, you know, we were we were best friends. I mean, he's still my best friend in spirit. I don't see him as much, but both of us played with each other in 2003 before either of us really tapped into the more psychedelic convergence with classic rock thing. So in 2003, we were both just backing each other up, and it sounded more like uh, some kind of version of indie rock. Sure, influenced by classic rock, but not. We didn't uh, really tap into this sort of homespun psychedelic thing until 2005 or so. and But what Adam did, I, after a while, I sort of compared him to Springsteen because he would like work to him. Like the, his recording method was that he'd work on these same songs over and over again and keep fine-tuning them, his, his attention to like uh, all the tones. And then me, I would, I would do things really quick or lay down solos pretty quick and improvise and... Uh, so it's every time it's a little different and, uh, so like, I I think to this day you could see like he's playing the, he, uh, he polishes the records and puts out this sort of arena ready rock that's actually playing arenas. It's really cool. In fact, I'm here in London and he, he just played the O2 arena the other day. We missed him by a day, but yeah, I think at the end of the day, I I was more of a raw dog or something or M <laughs> and I'm always I'm always trying to polish my thing too but it's it's just a different thing it's a more I've I've float around a little more and it can c- command command the arena rock kind of thing. Did you say raw dog? Yeah. Dog. <laughs> so you're raw dogging the music and he's wearing protection is what you're saying? <laughs> oh shit! You know somebody that's funny. That's I didn't mean that, but it I lo- I forgot that that's what uh you know baby I like it raw you know. I, I forgot that that's a... Somebody told me, honestly, somebody's like, I'm a raw dog. 
Somebody said that to me once. My buddy Adam, other Adam, who's actually in my band now, he said, "Well, you know, you just like to really play a brawl up there." I didn't, you know, I didn't, I didn't mean uh, that I don't wear condoms. I think musically, I, I, you know, I try not to. If I could get away with it. More specifically, with Adam, what, were there things when you talked about music and influences and people you loved and songs you loved? Were there things that? I know there were things you both loved, but were there also things where, like, one of you loves that shit and the other one absolutely hates it? Probably, but I can't really think of anything. I hear a little bit of an affection for almost like a Don Henley, Tango in the Night type thing in his music that I don't hear in your music. So that's kind of was my guess of, of a divergence. I mean, well, his newer, his newer music is maybe at times more influenced by that thing. I remember back in the day, we both loved Boys of Summer. Sometimes Adam has a version of that or something. You know me, I'm a, I'm a raw dog. <laughs> Not to diverge again, but the weird thing about Boys of Summer is it's really a Mike Campbell song. 100% a Mike Campbell track with Don Henley vocals. Of course it was. <laughs> Don Henley couldn't have put that together. <laughs> Do you think there'll ever be occasion for you guys to find some new way, perhaps, of, of working together again? I would play... At this point, anybody I play with, they're all my friends. There could be a time where we all play together again, but I, it's not. I think even the way that is, even what you talk, it was just like um, the reason we played together was because we were together in real life in, in Philly. And But of course, there, I mean, he's played on stage with me since then. I've played on stage with him. We both have kids now. It's hard to imagine. The future could hold anything, but that that's the beauty, you know. Uh, but I don't, I don't foresee some true project uh more than a you know who knows we could like just when we get old think is wanting wanting to do that but right now i can't imagine like a full-on project but that's a beauty why w would there be like we're friend like i i like the idea of it'd be more likely that we bumped into each other and played some guitars than like uh arrange some kind of official scenario because i that's not really the way my mind works there, or probably Adam at this point, you know? As far as collaborators, have you talked to or considered doing anything again with Courtney Burnett? I mean, it's the same exact thing. Courtney, that was so fun and it was so real. It was a moment captured and I loved it. And uh, she was actually supposed to come through Philly and I was going to sit in. Uh, but if we ever did music again, it would be just because we happened to decide to do it. There's a moment where that was uh, new and it was exciting and it and now we're like friends or brother and sister because of it and who knows about the future but again there was like a true moment captured initially so anything else it has to I, I feel like we'd have to stumble upon it you know mm. the sort of narcotic drone thing that you do which is I think increasingly key to your music when there's great examples of that on, on the new album on Like Exploding Stones. Stuff Leopard, for instance. Where for you does that come from? Where do you, outside of your own music, where do you find a similar thing? Like in the early days, you could say, just the way you described it, maybe only because you said narcotic. I was Velvet Underground. saying Spaceman 3 oh. or something. Yeah, Velvet Underground, sure. Anybody who can just kind of catch on to a groove and it's almost like meditation or something. Yeah, again, there's like people like John Fahey who locks into this groove, 
but so many I, on this record the album liquid swords by jizza or something you know like uh, even hip-hop things like like when you hear like a perfect dr drum machine and somebody like jizza flow over top of it it's like you almost you almost want to just quit for a minute and then then you're just inspired you're like well this makes me want to play music at least. I like the people that just put you in the zone. You can just get stuck in that groove. I want some tax free shit by any means. Whether the bounty hit scheme or some counterfeit cream. I learned much from such swift cons or run scams. It's not what people necessarily think of as, as stoner music, but I remember going to coffee houses in Amsterdam in the early 2000s. Every single one of them was playing some kind of Wu Tang derivative. Yeah. So that's interesting. And it's funny because that's been a nostalgic thing over the pandemic for me in particular because. I remember when the first Wu-Tang came out, not because I kept hearing people talk about it. I didn't have a copy myself, but they were always playing it on the bus and it was so good, like all the hits were good. And I, I liked it even more than I realized. And then more recently, the Wu-Tang documentary came out, you know, and it, the, the six part documentary, not like the biopic or whatever I'm talking about. And yeah, like all the, even like the old ODB, I, I heard that growing up, but I, I didn't maybe listen hard front front to back. So yeah, especially yeah, the like Jizza Liquid Swords. I'm so grateful that I didn't wasn't as familiar with that then because I needed it bad now. I could be wrong, but it seems like you you have in the past taken at least mild offense when people use the word stoner to describe the vibe of your music. Yeah, if I did, that was probably because life wasn't a piece of cake you know i was hustling my thing i was and and i still am to this day but now i think yeah slacker and stoner nowadays people have been asking me lately i i think there's way worse things to be called and i'd <laughs> i'd rather be that than uptight you know i'd rather be called something that's essentially chill i mean it's nice to be able to take the edge off sometimes it seems the world is a frightening place have you been able to create music, play music with a THC influence? Oh, I mean, I used to love it in my teens, and then all of a sudden I freaked out. I remember I freaked out, I would get panic attacks, and I couldn't, and then in my early 20s, I would sometimes s smoke, uh, and then I would get weird, you know, awkward, and then <laughs> and then I, for the longest time, I didn't do it. On and off, sure I have, but around the time I toured Bottle It In, I, I quit drinking, actually, and I was like, well, I got at least smoke some try smoking some weed again and, and, it, and it's worked out to varying results you, you got to find the right strain you know usually there's a certain sativa that is good but like lately yeah i can't be bothered right now but i did i saw bob dylan recently in philly for the rough and rowdy ways tour and it was the second concert back during pandemic the first one was that wu-tang members concert but i did i took one hit and at first I was like, oh God, I can't go in there. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, I can't, you know, I can't breathe with this mask on, you know. And then all of a sudden the first song sounded insane, cacophonous. And then all of a sudden I was like, this is the greatest night of my life. <laughs> Obviously it's Dylan, but still like rough and rowdy ways. Key West can't kill, can't, can't touch it. You know, so might as well smoke some weed and enjoy the show. <laughs>
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What's up, everyone? It's Reality Steve, your number one source for all things Bachelor Nation and reality TV. Every day, I'm giving you the behind-the-scenes juice and your info on all your Bachelor Nation stories and also interviewing some of your favorite reality stars. My name has been synonymous with spoilers, but I'm so much more than that. Give me a listen. The Reality Steve Podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen. The cover of Wages of Sin on this album, and for people who don't know, it's a, a Springsteen deep cut. It's uh, it's beyond deep cut. It's on tracks. It's a outtake from the Born in USA sessions. For more, see my book, Bruce Springsteen, The Stories Behind the Songs. That's incredible. I had no idea. But yeah, in, in all seriousness, it is, it's so unexpected as far as a song choice. I mean, I think it's a rare case of a Springsteen cover truly besting the original recording. But also capturing the exact vibe before you kind of go off into the cosmos, you really, really grokked what he was, that sort of floaty post-Nebraska thing that he was doing. I know you've been thinking about it for a while, and you've been on kind of a Springsteen kick, but you know, maybe you can share a little bit more about developing that cover. When we fight, I want to talk it out. You won't say nothing. Yeah, it was the final European leg of the tour for Bottle It In, the previous album. So you're talking 2018, 2019, and I, I remember I was extra burnt out. And yeah, I reconnected with the Springsteen song. Uh, I really loved Western Stars. That was helping me on a lot of flights. And I thought that was my favorite record of his in a long time. I mean... I gotta pay attention to what what other ones came out, but I'm pretty sure that was my favorite Springsteen record in, you know, years for sure. So for that reason, I reconnected to the song. I turned my latest drummer Kyle onto it. I was, and then it was at the end of the sessions that I was like, oh crap, the Violators got to go in and do one more. You know, at the end of a show, it's our last show of the tour. We got to go in the studio. So we went in with Rob and I knew, I was like, well, we talked about doing this version anyway. So it's a good thing to start with. And yeah, we didn't know it was going to take off at the end, like the cosmos. But I, I do have my methods of playing as close to the recorded version as possible. And also just the fact that I've listened to that one over and over and a lot again lately, I guess just because I'm an obsessive and I can sort of... Uh, it's what I do, you know. Um, if you wrote a book on Springsteen, you gotta know that you can you can tap into that. Uh, but yeah, uh, ultimately, it's still some sort of magic, some sort of alchemy. It's not like you. I don't. I, I also don't know how we did it, you know. But I I, I sort of know that when I was listening back, um, also a little stoned, you know, to recordings on the beach, I heard the cover back. I heard the Springsteen cover. And I said, I have no idea how what's going to be on this record but i know this springsteen song somehow might be the my favorite 
hit of all on this rec. You know, I, I was like, I know this song's gonna be on here. It's sort of a mad magic, you know, I don't know. I'm really good at impersonations, you know, and I could just lock in into those grooves. I mean, you, you essentially copy as much of the version as you can. I mean, without, you know what I mean? You just, and then, and then you take it your own direction, but stay very true. It's a serious, I feel like sometimes it's very important to stay as tr close to the original as you can. And I think people stray, but I, I think the secret is actually to get it as close as possible. And then, and then there's, and then there's other things in, in your style of playing that are, are going to be different. So that, that, that's really the secret is get it as close as possible to the original recording and then any nuances that's gonna that's gonna be your your spin on it yeah I, and then two songs later on stuff leopard uh, you then reference candy's room talk about stream of consciousness or faux stream of consciousness it sounds like someone's freaking out looking at a stuff leopard on a windowsill and then then you're playing candy's room quote from it then you reference uh the fact that the the jazz song song for my father was ripped off for Ricky Don't Lose That Number, which is, of course, true. I was then expecting you to say that So Was Innocent Man by Billy Joel. So you let me down a little bit right there. Tell me about how a song like that comes together. Stuff leopard on a windowsill It's just a toy Just a toy Yeah, okay. Well, I'll tell you how that song, and also what, yeah, all those things that trip you out because you're a music obsessive like me and you write about it, and I read about it, you know, uh, except also the other part of that dimension, which I also like, is it sort of sounds like Lou Reed, Coney Island Baby delivery, so it's all, and I'm, and I'm signed to Verve Records, you know, home of Velvet Underground, so there's so many dimensions to it, but, um, yeah, it's basically sort of that. It's sort of like a, I have another song, "Chassis Don't Mind," where I'm looking out my window on this record, and it's, it's really honestly just locking into that finger picking groove. And I looked over at my daughter's stuffed leopard, which actually is a cheetah, and then I'm like, it's just a toy, just so you know, just a toy. It's not a, it's not a dead taxidermed stuffed leopard, you know. So that's kind of funny in itself. Yeah, I'm playing Candy's Room. She knows I want to be Candy's boy. And I always love that delivery in Candy's when I Room. Come knocking, she smiles pretty. She knows I want to be Candy's boy. And I, it was during a time where I was cross-referencing a lot. and a I mean, I, I had to happen to notice that Dylan was doing that, with, again, with uh, Rough and Rowdy Ways. But I, I was excited about Rough and Rowdy Ways because yeah, I think that's his answer to Tempest, which I, I, that was the one of his solo records that I didn't get into until a little later. And I, I like songs like Roll On John, where he's, you know, it's about John Lennon and he's referenced, he has all these references in it to yeah, I know you, the Beatles, I know you like that song. I think that, I think that's the worst song on the album, but, but that's, that's another, oh, really? yeah, I hate that song. That's funny. I, I feel like this is a guy who, who knew John Lennon, who, you know, rode in a cab with him and everything. And he's writing about him. Like he looked up him up on Wikipedia. I thought it was like an elaborate, <laughs> an funny. elaborate joke or something. I can respect yeah. that. Yeah, that's so bad. I think it's just because I am, at the time, I think when I heard that and I realized what it was about, I just, I was going through my own struggles that I needed 
you know, I worship people. I was worshiping him at that time, so I, I thought it was beautiful. I was thinking about that style anyway, you know what? And the Murder Most Foul came out. I was like, oh, of course. Like, I knew it did. To me, it doesn't fall far from the tree of, of your favorite song, Roll On John. And I was really excited for the record to come out. And I, I just wasn't surprised. I could see it coming. It also seems like both of those songs that they of yours, the Chaz, you don't mind as well, they're both pandemic songs lyrically. They're both about being sort of trapped yeah, in the house. Strum in a song. They are. But except with me, I I literally both times, because I mean, I, I know I'm lucky, you know, I got, I like, this was like the only, uh, aside from all the ter terrifying aspects of it, like it was the one way where I could just have a normal routine with my family and, you know, not, but like, so both of those songs, I'm, I'm feeling good, but yeah, sure. That one's a little more disorienting, not totally blissful. Chazzy Don't Mind is completely blissful, but I'd say the start of uh, Stuff Leopard is more happy, and then I, I get a little delirious by the end. <laughs> Both in Stuff Leopard and just, you know, sort of throughout your discography, there is that sort of acid trip feel as well. Is it, were psychedelics ever a part of your life or your creativity? I mean, I wouldn't say they're a part of my creativity. I wouldn't say I that... No, <laughs> I think that was a. That I mean, feels like an incomplete answer. I mean, but we'll, yeah. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I've, I've, uh, in my life, I've had, you know, I'm an adult, you know, but I, I, I don't, I don't need them for creativity or anything like that. I never, but it's. I'm 42 years old, so I've, I've tried things here and there in my life. <laughs> You do, you do talk to, it's more, and maybe it was a matter of the dosage, but you do talk to boomer era, like movie directors, authors, and musicians who say they had a, a few intense psychedelic experiences that helped shape their creativity for the rest of your life. And I, I rarely hear that from younger people. I feel like now I can't even, at least lately, I can't even smoke uh, weed because it makes me think I'm just going to get scared of there's just too many. I mean, not only are there truly scary things happening, but all, you're also everyone just seeing and constantly on their phone, or at least I think they are. That's it's it seems to be the general consensus that everybody's terrified, you know. So I don't know though. Psychedelics could help. Uh, they could help uh, a younger person. You know, it really really depends where your mind's at. The thing about the pandemic and, you know, there's a lot of musicians with families for whom, like you said, for whom, you know, amidst all the horror, it, it really was a very rare opportunity to spend whatever, 18 months or more for the first time, maybe just with their families. And then a lot of you are now back on the road. And I, I feel like an underexplored thing is just maybe this sort of not to dramatically use the term mental health, I feel like people throw that around too much, but just like the emotional impact of, of that, that while it's great to be back, like you're kind of being ripped away from your home for the first time in a while and, and how that kind of feels. Yeah, no, it, I just did it and it was hard. Uh, but, and, and, and when you say mental health, it, I, I think about, I do, I do feel like uh, mentally like more complete sound than ever and from being able to just be home and be normal but like it's also made i feel like i just 
before I didn't have a routine, I'd come home and be completely depleted, you know, and, and now you now that I've had time to reset and go out, you can also think about, think ahead about when you're going to be at home and what you want to do, you know, just, just leave proper breaks there and then have the family meet me out on the, on the road and things. Uh, so it's, yeah, it's, it's basically don't let, it's like, don't let happen what happened before. You got to have a balance. You truly do. How do you feel about the term dad rock in general? At first I couldn't stand it. And then it's sort of inevitable. Like people would use it, you know, to describe me in some way. It's inevitable. I, I think you get chilled out. And if you, if you mention your kids or put them in your songs at all. Yeah. I like not as far stones throw away from David Gray. What are you going to do? <laughs> I think it has a negative connotation, but I, I'm okay with it. It definitely can be a diss, you know, somebody, and I, I've been called that enough. But it, in another way, I see where people are coming from, so I don't, I don't really care anymore. <laughs> I once asked Jeff Tweedy about it because he was kind of the ground zero for that, for dad rock as an insult in America. I think, I think that term existed in English uh, music criticism way before it did in, in America, but they, you know, I think Sky Blue Sky famously was called Dad Rock by Pitchfork, and that started a whole thing. Uh, great album, of course. And and uh, he, he wow. and, and what, I didn't yeah, know that. And what, but what Jeff Tweedy said uh, is uh, when people say Dad Rock, they actually just mean rock. Uh, there are a lot of things today that don't have anything to do with rock music. So when people hear something that makes them think this is derived from some sort of continuation of the rock ethos, it gets labeled dad rock. And to me, those people are misguided. I don't find anything undignified about being a dad or being rocking. So I, I kind of love that. I love him. I think it's interesting because, yeah, because Wilco did go through that where because even when Sky Blue Sky came out, I don't I think I got it right away. And then I. And then you listen back to it now. I've been listening to it recently. It, it's crazy how good it is. It's yeah, and it's definitely to, for that to be labeled dad rock is annoying. Like a uh, impossible Germany is on that record, right? Like, like woo, that's far from what what I would call dad rock. <laughs> I wanted to ask you about Mount Airy Hill from the album. It's a great one. Thanks. Uh, yeah, it came together. Like I knew Rob Schnapp was gonna show up at my studio in Philly from LA, and the whole band was gonna be there. And he was supposed to show up at his previous session, but he got sick, so he didn't come. So this was the first one where he was actually gonna show up. And they're my favorite kind of songs because I don't even like Pretty Pimpin' was similar. You know, that was my most popular song, but that I didn't even know I that song was gonna. I didn't even know I was going to have a new song. I woke up this morning, didn't recognize the man in the mirror. Then I laughed and I said... I just knew I was going to go and mix with Rob Schnapp in L.A. And then I got stoked and wrote the song. I was like, instead of mix, can we start with this song? We'll see what happens, you know? Uh, well, and uh, Mount Airy Hill is similar. I got this arpeggiating Yamaha organ upstairs, sort of like I said with my clunky piano. With those kind of... You know, written into it, it's just like a poppy, uh, that poppy kind of chord progression, like A to E to, oh man, I can't even see because it's an organ right now, whatever. It's like, you know, that pop kind of chord progression, and then just two chords in the refrain, and I, ha I wrote it really fast with this arpeggiating Yamaha organ, 
I don't know, wrote, wrote it down super quick. I was like, this has got pop potential and it's got this little yodel thing kind of influenced by Hank Williams or Terry Allen or something. And, and uh, when the band got there to play, it, I just went upstairs with no headphones on, you know, just sang into a microphone while playing the organ at the same time. And much to my, my drummer Kyle's chagrin, he had to play to it. You know, at, at the end, I hit the drum machine on the organ, but before then, it's just the arpeggiator by itself. And and I don't know, it was like a moment of, oh, this song is cool, uh, sung live and played uh, the organ, you know, but now we got to... Everybody basically played one solid part to it. So by the end of the night, in the evening, early evening, the song was just there. Everybody had like, there's a solid bass, a slide guitar, one other guitar and the drums. And other than that, it's basically like a raw kind of nuggets tune um, with a, a sort of, I also say that I tapped into an alter ego with that song. It's just some kind of, that's my like, sort of Texan hick like <laughs> alter ego that I've been chasing for a while, you know. Um it's got sort of a snarl to it. Yeah, it's my favorite song on the record and and also just the fact that it's, you know, name drops my the the part of the city that I live in which is in the trees. It's still in Philadelphia, not the suburbs. Um but there's mountains all around and it's me confident and happy being at home and it, it was just made you know, one afternoon into the evening, and and uh, you know, yeah, it's magic. It's a magic tune. I'm glad you yeah, like man. it. Give, given your more than theoretical interest in in writing hits per se, have you ever been interested or or even been invited to participate in one of those songwriting camps for pop stars? That sound. That sounds like. It sounds like I, I I'm interested in in it in writing uh, pop songs or have it coming up with hits even involving pop stars but i don't think it at a camp and i don't i don't i i don't think it would come out conventional i don't you know once it you put it in a box nothing's gonna happen <laughs> this is the way it works for me anyway i feel like i feel like you could i feel like miley cyrus could definitely cover one of your songs i feel i feel like that i could actually 100 percent see that happening I would love that. I met her once. Me and Liz Fair at the same time met her at Primavera, and we were equally waiting in line, both both like exciting fan fangirl fanboy, like to meet Miley. <laughs> and uh, I got to tell her this funny story about how I met her dad, and, and it was at the station inn in Nashville, and it was the night I got to meet John Prime for the first time, and Billy Ray Cyrus happened to be there, and he was really funny and cool. But I, I got to ask him in in front of. Uh, John Prine, I was like, hey, uh, Billy, did you ever hear that song by Cypress Hill where they name drop here? They're like, just like Billy Ray Cypress Hill. And he's like, no, I never heard it. But then later, but, but then later he, he, my daughters were getting impatient. They're like, when are you going on stage? Cause I'm bored, I'm tired. And then Billy Ray Cyrus played a version of Folsom Prison Blues. And then my daughter, Wilda, was like, that totally woke me up. And she was singing all the words and looking around. And then anyway, at the end of the night, Billy Ray, I said, it's nice to meet you, man. I got to go. And he's like, listen, man, I got bad news for you. Your daughter looks just like Miley when she was her age. I could see it in her eyes. She's got charisma. You're gonna, you're in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then I got to tell Miley that. And then she's like, okay, I'll tell my Sounds dad. Sounds like my dad. Part of why I think 
rock slipped out of the mainstream in the 2000s was so much of mainstream rock in the first decade of this century had such awful sounding guitars, like just like just <laughs> harsh and horrible, and the warmth got all sucked out of it. And I think one of the the great things sonically about what you do is you whether acoustic or electric, you know, you always have these warm, beautiful, except with the occasional blast of deliberate unpleasantness. What is your sort of philosophy of, of guitar sounds, guitar tones? Wow, that's, thanks a lot. I, for some reason that really touched me. I needed to hear that just now, so thank you. <laughs> but uh, um, I think it's sort of like, I might've brushed upon it before, but I, I like the idea First of all, I make my chords sort of dreamy in general, and and uh, a lot of it's just in the fingers, but I like to just get, and I like to sort of, more often than not these days, get the tremolo bar and just always keep pushing down on it in a sort of shoegaze way, but it's got more American, you know, kind of Americana-infused psychedelia or something. But then there's, there's, all, there's an array of filter pedals or anything you can use, but... But uh, delay, whatever. But I think at the end of the day, I, I use less and less effects all the time. And it's sort of just the way you whole, whole you know, just move your fingers around until the chords kind of sound more dreamy all the time. Um, but yeah, I've been elusive to technology my whole life. But slowly but surely, you know, uh, I'm I'm paying attention to my amps and things like, uh, or for instance. Like if you're gonna play a distorted guitar, you could get like an old brown. I think Jeff Tweedy honestly originally taught me this. Like I play lead guitar a lot through an old brown Fender Champ, like a '50s style. Instead of getting a bunch of fuzz pedals, you just you just warm up the tubes on this old amp. You know, that's just one example of a trick. Um, but I I think uh, after a certain point, it's all in the fingers. You can get a lot of tone out of just the way you just the way you you use your fingers i don't know man and that is our show for today thanks so much to kurt vile for joining us we'll be back next week we're on sirius xm's volume channel 106 and we are of course a podcast download us wherever you get your podcast subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast maybe leave us a nice review on apple Podcasts specifically that really is appreciated but as always thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.